Welcome to Screen Talk Indie Wars Weekly Podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, still not joined by my sparring partner, Ann Thompson, who is continuing her post-Oscars vacation, very much deserving. But the rest of us are exhausted for other reasons, which have to do with the Cannes Film Festival. So we've been anticipating that lineup for a long time. I always have a good time and, and, and also feel like I've hit a brick wall at the same time when I get up at the crack of dawn to track the uh, announcement in real time. But it was even more shocking than usual this time around because uh, the timing was, I think, constrained to some degree by the French election. So the lineup was announced a little bit earlier than usual, and it felt very unfinished. But regardless, even though it sounds like we're going to get some more films later, uh, we got almost 50 titles, 47 titles, and that's a lot to dig through, some oversights that are worth looking at, and uh, and some films that we've been anticipating for a long time. So um, for this segment, I've got uh, my trusty partners in crimes tracking this stuff, Kate Erbland, our executive editor of film, and David Ehrlich, our senior film critic. Welcome, both of you, and thanks for sticking around on a very tiring day. Um, so uh, why don't we start with Kate uh, because uh, before we get into the specifics of the films, you wrote, I think, a very important piece about the continuing women problem at Cannes, more specifically that there's just not a lot of them in the lineup. So what, how did, let, let, let's just like lay it out. Like what, what were the statistics this year and how did they stack up to previous years? Obviously a woman won the Palme d'Or last year. So a lot of people noticed that and we're talking about it, but fill in the blanks so this year in official competition with 18 films announced and as you mentioned there will be more films announced we don't know if that includes competition i would assume that it does only three of them are directed by women which makes it the same percentage uh, as last year which was 16.6 percent um but in terms of overall representation it's down uh, especially if you look at some of the other categories as well and you know for the past few years there's been three or four uh, female-directed films in competition. Got a little stagnant, but it was certainly better than it had been. And in some you know, earlier interviews, there had been an indication that there would be a bigger increase and in, uh, more representation of women. And that's not true just if you're looking at the basic numbers, and it's not true if you're even looking at the percentage, which, if we're being generous right now, is currently stagnant. Um, and as I mentioned in my piece, when we do our annual can wish list, it always gets me so excited for the movies that we know are being made by women and are presumably going to be ready for the festival. We don't know if they're being submitted. We don't know 100% if they're ready, but they're the things in the mix. And I always get excited. And then I look and I'm like, oh, well, I guess only three of them made the cut. And again, as I said in my piece, looking at some of the other sections, um, they're pretty barren when it comes to women besides um, Uncertain Regard, which is at 40% and it's got a ton of great stuff to be excited about. But, uh, you know, as Eric said, we get up for this every, uh, you know, the spring morning uh, to announce what the lineup is going to be. And it's not I don't take pleasure in getting up at 5 a.m. on a Thursday to see these numbers. And so I'm, I'm hoping that more will be announced and I can feel better about this as of well, right now. It's like aspirational, right? Because like you want a festival that commands so much media attention and impacts the industry to be reflective of the way you want the the culture and the industry of filmmaking to look like so if it's not meeting those expectations it's frustrating and i think you've done a good job of like keeping that conversation going we know that there are plenty of women directors out there and the festival signed a, a pledge to get 
uh, closer to that by 2020. And it hasn't exactly met that. But there are some women directors in competition that are particularly exciting. So do you want to talk a bit about those? I mean, a couple really worth pointing out. There's the new Claire Denis movie, The Stars at Noon, which for a while she thought she wasn't going to be able to make because of COVID. It stars Joe Alwyn, who I think we still haven't seen in a, a really meaty role. So I'm excited about the possibilities there. Margaret Qualley, who's always fantastic to watch. And I expect they're going to have a really interesting energy and chemistry together. And then I'm also really excited about Kelly Reichardt's movie, uh, Showing Up, which brings her back together with her muse, Michelle Williams. So yes. that's always great, but it's apparently uh, more of a comedy than we're used to from Kelly. And her work can be really funny. There's like lots of laughs in First Cow. But yeah. the idea that she's doing something that would be classified as a comedy has me really, really excited. So there's yeah. not a lot, but I'm excited about them. It's always fascinating too, is like can hype. And I want to bring David into this in a second, but it's like everything that we think we know changes so quickly. I mean, the Claire Denis film was one of the French films and supposedly Cannes invited the French films last. So like A24 didn't even find out that movie was going until like a few hours until it was announced. And, you know, probably she was rushing to finish it. You know, you have this like major auteur who's an incredibly sophisticated storyteller, like rushing to get this like incredibly ambitious uh, kind of large scale period drama together in time. And with Kelly Reichert, even more so like her films are so textured and understated so for people to be like oh it's going to be one of her lighter funnier ones and they go to ken it's like presumably still a kelly reichert movie but uh we'll see how that plays out it is exciting to have her in competition um so david uh you've been going to can a few years what stood out to you about today's announcement and and the films that you're uh, most excited to see well, when you get there well speaking to the issue of parody i mean kate what do you expect them to do when naomi kawase hasn't made a new movie so um, they're uh, they're they're tough find. Um, no, there. I mean, there were there were some absences that I missed. And Mia Hansen Love, not surprised that she wasn't. Yeah, she, what happened she, there? Time. Well, I think I, I my guess would be it wasn't a case of it being rejected. That it, it's she simply takes more time uh, to make movies. A movie shot similar to Berkman Island in various stages, interrupted by COVID. In this case, um, I was not surprised that it couldn't get finished in time, but hopefully maybe Joanna Hogg will pop up in Director's Fortnite. Eric, uh, your intel seems to suggest that we all have to wait to the fall, but. I think it's um, title. Yeah, but A24 is all over the festival. So on yeah. some level, it's like a question of bandwidth too. Sure. Um, but to go to your question about the films that are going to be there, I think when I first learned that Cannes was gonna be canceled in 2020, uh, my initial reaction was, not concerned for the festival in 2021, but concerned for what the 2022 lineup might look like. Cause it was clear that there was gonna be an embarrassment of riches last year. But I wondered because of, you know, production interference from, from the pandemic that we would be, um, things would be thin this year. And just based on the wattage of the lineup, the marquee value, at least in our world that the titles announced today have, those concerns seem to be unfounded. I mean, uh, personally, I am most excited, I think, pound for pound, about a new Park Chan Wook movie. Um, his decision to leave, I deliberately know very little about, uh, maybe a murder mystery of some kind, I think is all that I've gleaned. Um, but I have been a fan of his for forever. Uh, I can't believe it's already been so many years ago that The Handmaiden was at the festival, I think it was in 2016. Um, and uh, his television show that he made in the interim um, was, I think, a little bit of a letdown, despite a great performance from Florence Pugh. So I'm really excited to see him, who's such a clockwork, ornate filmmaker back in the 
medium that I think serves him best. Uh, I think I'm not the only one who's very excited for David Cronenberg to be back in the mix for the first time oh, yeah. in an even longer stretch of time. And Crimes of the Future was never a question mark for Can, and they have really come out of the gate swinging. I mean, I, by the time I woke up this morning, there was already a trailer. There have been <laughs> teaser posters um, yeah. leading up to today. Uh, I haven't watched the trailer yet, but uh, from the images that I've seen, it you know, very much a David Cronenberg movie and uh, the premise, the cast, I mean, what more could you want? And I'm really excited for an opportunity or an excuse rather to rewatch some of my favorite movies of his of next oh, yeah. And, and um, I, I remember last year with Titane, you know, everybody was saying it was Cronenbergian and it, the reaction it got from the crowd during some of those insane sequences, you know, banging the car or whatever. It's like that with Cronenberg, like kind of invented that kind of a thing where you're like, what the hell am I watching? But I can't stop watching it, you know, which is very, very much like ahead of its time in a way. Like that's what media is now. And I've talked to some people who saw this thing and they were like, this is a Cronenberg movie. Like it's gonna, it's gonna freak people out. Like when we see that thing in the palais, Twitter's gonna break. Like even if Elon Musk is already destroying it, it's gonna break <laughs> even more. It's it's that kind of a thing. And uh, you know, uh, with apologies of just sticking to the the big guns and the obvious picks. I mean, there'll be time for a little bit more nuance down the list later. But uh, you have a couple of recent Palm winners who are back with either their subsequent films or. Um, you know, a film that, like in the case of Hirokazu Koreeda, uh, who's back with Broker, I mean, he's made a film between now and Shoplifters, which won the Palm. Um, but being back in the Cannes lineup is obviously a, uh, not that Venice, where the truth premiered is is any kind of slouch, but like this is obviously a big vote of confidence for it. It's, it's the world's biggest stage for a film like this. Um, and the plot about the boxes, uh, it, it takes place in Korea, actually, these boxes where people can, drop unwanted babies and then for them to be adopted by other families is obviously uh, for anyone who's seen really anything Korea has made in the last 20 years, uh, to the heart of his sweet spot of the kind of stories about found families that he likes to tell. Uh, and so I, I'm expecting some feelings there. Um, and then also Ruben Osland is back with Triangle of Sadness uh, yeah. after winning with The Square, which was not my favorite film of his, but so much to chew on. And uh, a movie about like a, again, I am not super up to speed what it's about, but as far as I know, it's like Woody Harrelson captaining a Marxist cruise ship of some kind. No, no, no. Uh, he is a Marxist <laughs> and he's a captain of a ship with these like rich models and they get shipwrecked. So it right. sounds a bit like, um, <laughs> you know, swept away or something like that, like a Perfect. social satire or whatever. But, you know, it's, a, it's always an open question when, when somebody is working, doing their big first English language movie with stars and stuff, like how that translates. It is worth noting, like, Oslin's Force Majeure was remade as a movie that nobody remembers called Downhill. So if he's going to be working in English, it's like better to have his take than somebody else taking his material. So I guess that... That's <laughs> um, I guess I'm never going to figure out what a Marxist cruise ship looks like, but uh, we still have <laughs> I mean, socialism for, for that. Um, exactly. And, uh, and finally, in, in the Palme d'Or class, uh, you know, and we'll talk about Armageddon time and... Uh, the Dardenne brothers and everyone later, but I mean, the Dardenne brothers having won the Palm twice would fit into this conversation. But I just wanted to point out my excitement at a new Christian Munju film um, that I know exactly nothing about, um, not even the, their bare bones of the plot, but um, you know, he uh, always delivers for me four months, three weeks and two days, Beyond the Hills, Graduation are all very strong movies and RMN, couldn't tell you what it stands for. I'm sure, uh, you know, six weeks from now, we'll know it inside and out. Um, but I, uh, I, it's one of those names that pops out of me at the lineup and promises 
uh, an exciting can. I think it's an immigrant drama or about about anti-immigrant sentiments in a small town, but that's about all I know. I'm guessing the Dardenne Brothers film could that description could also apply. Could touch on uh, that. So we're looking at some timely stories this year. I don't know about crowd pleasers per se, but from from topicality to David Cronenberg, it's certainly going to be a lot to to talk about. I I feel inclined to to touch base with you both in a couple of weeks or whatever it takes to flesh out this can lineup because we're not quite there yet. We don't even have a jury. We don't know who yeah. the president is. We don't know who's going to vote on these movies. And that always helps add to the narrative. Um, before we were at rap, um, you know, David, you and I have been going to Cannes and like, you know, hustling and experiencing this environment in, in this like really kind of intense way where it's like you're jumping from these, you know, presumably major movies one after another and trying to process them in real time and tell the world about it. But Kate, from the New York perspective, I'm curious about how can plays for you do you feel that kind of anticipation do you feel that the hype that travels across is or is it really just you know the movie that wins the palm d'or and and everything else well i mean i think as, as david termed it in our world yes it's still like it's the biggest thing going and i don't think i'll be doing it this year but for the past few years i would get up and work can hours so that i could could be on deck and see what's going on and edit all the great stuff coming out and even though that was exhausting that was also a great way to get me excited i did feel part of it i felt um very caught up in everything that was going on and maybe not so much this year but um I don't know. I'm hoping that I'll still be able to see a few things and still be excited. But yeah, when you're you're at the office or you're with our colleagues, it's the only thing that anyone's talking about. And that's true no matter the time difference, no matter the distance. Good deal. We'll keep hope alive, folks. Thanks for staying up to have this conversation and uh, more to come. I'm very happy to have a new guest this week after our uh, regular uh, guest host, Tom Brueggemann, and that is a new hire to the team, Tony Maglio, our executive business editor. Tony, welcome. So happy to have you here. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's really exciting to have a new voice on this podcast because I feel like the more that people listen to me, the more they feel like they've just like heard it all before. You know, I mean, it's like we do have regular listeners, but at the same time, it's sort of like this weird thing where you get so myopic. You're like, how do we freshen things up? So it's nice to have you here. And uh, it's nice to have a, a, a different kind of perspective than we often have in this podcast, which can be very inside baseball when it comes to movie stuff. Now, you're a TV guy. W- what's your sort of like trajectory in the sense of like how you wound up writing about the business of this particular medium? By the way, so much pressure put on me to inform the people who are tired of listening to you and seeing you. Uh, it's a great question. I had a really atypical path. Um, when I first came out of college, I was a business major. I got my MBA, I, honestly, so I could stay around college a little longer. And then um, I went into the accounting and finance field, not like public accounting, but like mutual fund stuff. Um, and that company moved to Boston and I was in New Jersey, where I am again, uh, not willing to move to Boston. So I took another job in finance uh, and boy, was that a very different job. And it was at that point where I was like doing a lot of freelance writing on the side. And I was like, writing is so much more fun than Excel spreadsheets and so on and so forth. So I went to, um, I applied to one journalism school. I was like, what's writing? Journalism is writing. I like journalism in high school. Went to Columbia, made that career switch. Um, and right out of that, as a, I was a young 30-year-old intern uh, at The Wrap, uh, one of the Hollywood trades. And I just worked there for like, eight or nine straight years and worked my way up from intern to reporter to senior reporter to TV editor. 
uh, and then I started conversations uh, to come to IndieWire. And, you know, it's funny, I wanted originally to get away from the business, from the accounting and finance and the Excel spreadsheets. That was my entire, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say my entire, but one of my reasons for going into journalism and entertainment specifically interested me. And uh, so here I am using Excel spreadsheets and writing about business and stock and uh, <laughs> mutual fund adjacent. But in a more exciting stuff. way. I mean, I guess very much one thing you know that I find kind of fascinating, both because I because I teach it and also as working as an editor over the years and stuff, is that a lot of times entertainment journalists are so business focused that they're not even looking at the stuff they're writing about. But you you watch TV, right? I mean, like you're into TV as a yeah. storytelling medium. Yeah, I'm a loser. I watch a lot of TV and there's so much TV. It's it's still amazing how much I'm able to consume. Of course, none of us on the TV side are able to really fully keep up with uh, with the amount of TV scripted, unscripted otherwise. But yeah, I'm a true TV guy. Like it's funny when I first started this film, always seemed a lot sexier, a lot more interesting, or at least the awards were more prestigious and stuff. And I fell into TV and I realized, you know, what? I just like this better. I'm I'm. I'm the HGTV super fan kind of guy. I'm the uh, sitcom super fan or, or, you know, Breaking Bad, like blew me away. It's so, you know, uh, you and I were uh, briefly discussing some art house type film stuff, Fellini or whatever. And uh, that is, uh, you know, Breaking Bad stole that for a little, a couple episode titles, I believe. And yeah. Breaking Bad was my, uh, but I don't know what I, what you would use on this podcast. Uh, my citizen Kane. So um, yes, yeah. I truly, no, but it's, it's interesting truly love to talk yeah. about it that way, because I mean, there was that turning point with the breaking bads of the world, or some people might say Sopranos or whatever, where mm-hmm. it was suddenly okay to talk about TV in a serious way. And I do feel like there's this like leading together of the forums where it's like a lot of people who do TV are film inspired or come from the film space. And so, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a breadth of knowledge of film history, you might still be absorbing some of that through the work that's being done right now. I mean, we were geeking out about Severance like Mm -hmm. day one and Stiller is, you know, like Ben Stiller is like a a huge movie guy and there's tons Mm -hmm. of movie stuff in there and you could still appreciate it without knowing all of that. So, yeah, I feel like that's an important point to make too. Yeah, so that super prestigious stuff, and then HGTV. That's yeah, that's well, it's okay too. Look, I, I've I've done my my time with Ninety Day Fiance, which uh, which I suppose we should talk about in another context coming up. But first, I want to get into something else that's uh, relevant to your space, and that is upfronts. Um, just because it's a neat opportunity to talk about something that we usually don't get into in a podcast that deals with like award season and film festival buzz and all that kind of stuff upfront is like something that just doesn't figure into the conversation. So give us a one-on-one here. Like what the hell is upfronts? Yeah. What the hell is upfronts is like a great headline to write that probably a lot of people have written because it's so, it's one of these things where I think, you know, the people outside of the industry, uh, they certainly don't know what, you know, they, they probably know what, what Sundance is or they have a sense of it. They certainly know what like South by Southwest is. But some TV things like the like TCA and Upfronts are so foreign to any consumer. So unless you're in the business, you really don't know or need to know. The other business, though, that you would certainly know about Upfronts is the advertising industry or the media buying industry, because the Upfronts are an annual time of year where traditionally it was like broadcast networks, right? So uh, they would have, at, you know, usually in May or pretty much always in May, like the third week of May, each network would have its own presentation. And what they do is 
by this point in the season, they know what shows that they currently have they're canceling. They know what shows that they currently have they're renewing. And then we're at the end of pilot season. So they've seen the new shows, you know, the one one off episode pilots, and they pick and choose uh, what they're going to comprise their fall schedule of. Uh, this gives them a couple of months of lead time to sell advertising, obviously to enter production and to edit and post-production and Blah, 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 blah. But the thing about the upfronts is as TV has totally changed, so have the upfronts. We still have the big NBC events, CBS, ABC, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But anything with ads now, which is soon to include even Disney Plus, is going to have to have an upfront presentation because what you're trying to do is you're trying to impress media buyers and attract their dollars to your shows, to your platforms. So what you do is you make these beautiful trailers, you put on these big, glitzy, glamorous presentations at Carnegie Hall, CBS's place of choice, for example, NBC does Radio City Music Hall, and then you throw a big party and you give everybody a bunch of free drinks and food and you introduce them to John Cena if you're Fox and mm -hmm. uh, you try to get their advertising dollars by any way possible. So it's just, it's like anything else in TV, it's got its roots in this traditional uh, setup, which is broadcast and commercial based. And it has just continued to kind of expand and expand and expand to the point where, I mean, the upfront started technically like March 2nd or something like that. Um, but they're very sporadic and May is really where it's heavily concentrated. So even the big streaming services uh, and like the new Warner Brothers Discovery, they'll be that third week in May, um, which is just a crazy nutty week um, where we will uh, get a sense of what's to come on, on both traditional TV and streaming platforms. You know, the only wrinkle that the last thing I'll say about Upfronts is like, it used to be like, all right, so this is what our fall schedule is going to be and yeah. our fall primetime schedule more specifically. And primetime is basically 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. There's some changes, but like streaming, there's no such thing as primetime. You just do it whenever you want to do it. So it's this unique thing now where like there really is, there's no limited space, as we know, on something like Disney Plus or HBO Max with ads or Discovery Plus or Peacock or Paramount Plus or whatever, there's endless space to uh, put in commercials. And everyone is going back to commercials as a revenue stream. Uh, Netflix may join them in the future. We'll see. But yeah, so all of that really long-winded thing to say is that upfronts are so busy. And this year, it's just going to be it's just going to be crazy. Well, I, I was hoping I would find some parallels in the little insular film world that I live in. And on some level, I do feel like it reminds me of the, the, the film markets that people go to where it's like most of the people in the industry are dreading them. You go to like, say, the Cannes Film Festival, which just announced the lineup this week. It's not just the festival. It's also what they call the Marche du Film, the, the film market, which is like a bunch. It's basically like a conference with a bunch of posters for non-existent movies. And they're trying to like pre-sell territories and show clips of things. And like the, the success of those products is fully contingent on whether or not they have something to appeal to people, whether it's quality or like marketability. But I think what's interesting about like on the upfront thing, that's like hard for me to wrap my head around is like a lot of these companies, like if you close those advertising deals, you're sort of like you're set, right? Like the shows don't even necessarily have to be successful in the fall because you already got the ads, right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there are some, there are things called make goods in TV and they're, they're less and less that they happen. But, you know, if you sell based on an estimate of, I mean, this is going to be a terrible example because this is 
This is us's final season on NBC, right? So if they were selling a seventh season of This Is Us for next fall or whatever, you might guarantee an audience or guarantee a demo or something. And then, you know, if that didn't happen, you might be willing to make good on some platform somehow uh, in the future. So it's like it's one of these things where you're mostly right in that you're kind of locked in and it is what it is like Oscars ads. uh, They don't do make goods for Oscars ads. ABC and the Academy says so. If the, if the viewership is terrible, like last year, you're yeah, screwed. Right. If the viewership is decent, like this year, you're probably okay with it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, for the most part, you get your money within like six to eight weeks of the upfront period. I mean, I don't mean you literally collect your money. I don't have that information, but like you, you lock it in. You sell out your inventory, especially on uh, you know traditional television. So the only risk really in overselling and underperforming is like next year, people are going to be pissed, but that's next year's problem. So right. yeah, it's kind busy. of, it's not too dissimilar, man. And especially you talking about posters and there, I just learned something from you that I didn't know about the, that's so fascinating. And, but you know, at TV, it's really just a trailer that sells right. the new shows. You know, you know what you're getting more or less with a returning show, you know, with Abbott elementary season two or whatever it is. Uh, from season one, but nah, new shows are, you have the talent and that's it. It's basically a poster. Yeah. And, and look, a lot of the, the ultimate decision makers here are making decisions that affect both of these worlds. And on that note, I think we should talk a bit about one of the people who's probably trying to figure out their way through upfronts right now. And that's Warner media, which, you know, is now entering into the post Jason Kilar era as expected. He's out as CEO is, David Zaslav figures out what Warner Media Discovery looks like. And uh, that's something you've been writing a little bit about. I have so many questions about this. I mean, we we see on on the, the Warner Media side from the film perspective, you know, it's like that they'll have certain kinds of projects that are exciting to talk about. But it's 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 such a different universe from you know what HBO Max is represented on the series side. It's such a, a wide array of of programs there and it's international. So just when it started to seem like when I turned on my Apple TV and that HBO Max app was like a normal part of my routine, you know, watching John Oliver or whatever, it feels like it's about to get screwed up again. Like what are we supposed to expect in terms of like the future of HBO Max and uh, you know, what Warner Media streaming strategy looks like? More 90 day fiance. That's what you can expect. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, dude, it's about to get weird, right? Because these, these, this convergence of this content, I mean, Warner media was weird enough as it was in that from the TV side, you had everything from HBO, which is like the prestigious, prestigious, prestigious TV. Then you had the Turner channels that were like a lot of reruns and then sometimes sports. And, and, And then you have CNN, which is, nothing to do with any of nothing to do with entertainment really except for the documentaries and you know food programming and whatever they're trying to do so they were that was already weird enough mm-hmm. um but yeah now this combination with discovery even again strictly from the tv side is is very strange because hbo programming um skews uh you know male and discovery programming skews female like 90 day fiance for example and so you know, in some ways you can say, well, that makes, that's a great fit because you got the men and you got the women. And again, not like, this is very generalized. It's not like women don't watch HBO. Like the discovery channel itself is men, but HGTV, TLC, Food Network, those are pretty female. 
And, you know, one is scripted. HBO is the scripted prestige drama. The other is literally 90 Day Fiance. It's mostly unscripted nonsense. Uh, that some like me, a huge HGTV fan, you a 90 Day Fiance lover, like we can get down with for sure. But we know what we're watching and what we're not watching. And, you know, so now the convergence of those two, you can look at it one of two ways. Either it's like great synergy because now we get husbands and wives or friends together right. or whatever. Bring the family women, together. All yeah. the demos. Yeah. It's maybe that or it's maybe like, why would anyone who subscribes to HBO Max or why would like, you know, your average person who subscribes to HBO Max want to subscribe to Discovery Plus, especially right. if it costs them a few more dollars? Well, it so also you got that tricky. Interesting questions about like, you know, um, market penetration, like this idea of, well, like Netflix is in trouble because they have all the subscribers they're going to get. But then Netflix also takes that sort of one size fits all approach, right? Like their algorithm solves these issues. So if you like food shows, you can watch food shows. Or if you like dreary dramas, you can watch Ozarks. And like, I don't know how much all of that overlaps, but it seems like they can kind of like drill down a bit. So don't you think there's a way to like get inside that from like a, an HBO Max perspective and say like, okay, we're not going to, we're, we're going to use the algorithm to make this a different service for, for different people based on what they want. Yeah, I think it is. It's a good argument for it. You know, it, it might not necessarily be bad. For example, I have to subscribe to HBO Max. And even as HGTV's number one fan, I don't subscribe to Discovery Plus. So now if I get it because it's either easier or cheaper or the same amount or whatever it is, like there is absolutely uh, an argument to be made that these something for everything's Netflix's of the world is, you know, that's how you become a player with Netflix. Right. And we see that with Disney Plus, too, because Disney Plus is massive, but it's not something for everyone. But now that they're bringing over like the Hulu Marvel shows that are a little more adult or young adult themed. And, you know, they just recently uh, brought over Dancing with the Stars from ABC, which skews pretty old and pretty female, you know, all of them clearly believe that you kind of have to be like a Netflix in a something for everyone kind of way to compete with Netflix. So that's definitely the plan, whether it works or it doesn't work. I mean, honestly, it's a time will tell situation because mm. we don't even know what that streaming service that HBO Max, Discovery Plus, whatever they end up calling it. We don't know what it'll look like. We don't know how much it'll cost. We don't know when it'll launch. So everyone is kind of either jumping on this something for everyone bandwagon or then you have the super niche people like the AMC streaming services that are like, no, we just want the horror fans or the British drama fans. Um, so it's an interesting play. Can they do it? Absolutely, they can do it. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, how well they're able to actually, you know, as we said before, bring the family together. You know, you got to have the kids programming, too. That's what Disney does. That's why Disney's so valuable. You know, they could add as much grown-up stuff as they want, but it's primarily going to be so my kids could watch Encanto for the 85th time in a row. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm dreading with my five-month-old. It's like, how do we get out of that loop, you know? Like, there's you some don't. pretty weird shows on there. I mean, maybe <laughs> we can experiment, but, but we'll, see. we'll see what happens in the years ahead. And the other streaming entity that I think is worth talking about in this context is Amazon. So, obviously, everybody knows Amazon Prime. I think fewer people have been tracking the strange saga of IMDb TV, um, which is a very strange name. I mean, I... I like IMDb. Obviously, I've used it my entire professional life. I never really yeah. understood the synergy between the name and the content. However, I did use it to watch Judy Justice, which is a hilarious show because they just crank the hell out of these <laughs> episodes. I mean, it's like the cheapest 
watered down version of judge judy but also with her i think it's her niece or something is also in the set and so they they tried to change up the formula a little bit but it's basically the same show like super cheap so i I have like the same desire to watch it that i do when i watch like a really ridiculous b movie where it's like so bad it's good and i had a really good time with it but that's not really a business model and this past week IMDb TV said that it was no longer IMDb TV. Amazon has rebranded it as Freebie, which you say in your, in your own reporting makes a lot of sense because it's pretty straightforward. It's free TV. Uh, but I guess the thing about this is it's an AVOD strategy, right? Advertising VOD. Just how valuable is it for Amazon to have something like this when you know most people are thinking, you know, I have Amazon Prime. That's how I watch stuff. Well, first of all, I mean, Amazon has all the money in the world. So, you know, there's very little risk to them screwing anything up. You know, even if they I'm not suggesting they overpaid for MGM, but who cares if they did? It's nothing to them. It's peanuts. Um, But it's an interesting strategy because we all, you know, the whole industry rushed to the Netflix model, which is a subscriber based model. And some people got there way too late and some people didn't have the right content or, you know, marketing or the name or whatever it is. And it got so saturated and everyone just bundled up and added a bunch of services and then didn't want to add anymore. And so mm-hmm. the advertising supported stuff is really where everyone's going. I mean, Disney Plus is doing it. Peacock has a, has a totally free tier and a, like a yeah. slightly ad supported tier or a minimal ads, I guess they call it. You know, Paramount uh, Plus has uh, Pluto to back up. It's uh, Pluto is another uh, totally free from CBS. Yeah, Tubi from Fox. You got a million of these things. So it's like for Amazon to have its portfolio broadened to this level, not that IMDb TV is new to them, but you know, to have that with Prime, like it makes sense because now you have several different revenue streams and you're kind of in a way hedging for the future because we don't entirely know where this is going to go. Everyone kind of agrees like well, the average person might settle on three to five streaming services that they'll pay for every month. No one really knows where cable is going. Um, so to have uh, ad-supported TV is is great. It's fine. It's wonderful because you're able to monetize people in different ways. Uh, and Prime, as you mentioned, is like it's totally unique in that the vast, vast, vast majority of Prime users aren't watching Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That they just want free shipping on cat food. And Mm. so they have this cool bonus that they may or may not use. I barely watch Amazon Prime and it's not really a shot at their programming. It's just like, again, I have it because I have a kid, uh, two kids, and diapers are expensive to ship, right? So, you know, so what IMDb TV, now Freevee, you know, kind of allows for is when you touched on this earlier, when a company like a Netflix hits the saturation point where it's like, we got everyone we're getting in the US and Canada. And you have to look international to grow even more. You look at India, you look at Africa, you know, these countries have tons of people, tons of potential users, but they don't have the money. So you either charge like five cents on the dollar, 20 cents on the dollar, whatever it might be, it's very inexpensive overseas to get these people, or you monetize them by letting, you know, I'll say Pepsi, though I don't know how much that necessarily applies globally. You, you charge Pepsi to, to advertise them. And these people in these you know, third world or poorer countries are totally willing to watch advertising, whereas spoiled Americans like us, we're so used to not watching it. Hmm. Um, but, you know, so you have this option, you have option A, which is you pay for Prime and you can watch our premium programming. 
Or option B, you want to put freebie on in the background, cool, but you know, right. you're know you going to have to sit through you know, these Nike ads or whatever. Or like bust out your phone when they air. I mean, it was a hilarious, <laughs> you know, when the, uh, the CEO of Quibi gave, or, no, I'm sorry, Quibi, I'm thinking of different kinds of failed services, the CEO of uh, MoviePass. <laughs> they all kind of blur together after a while. But MoviePass, you know, tried to, is trying to relaunch and has this like new tech where they're saying like, you, you have to like watch an ad on your phone and they have some sort of like AI that like reads your eyeballs to make sure you're watching it. And I was like, well, nobody wants to feel like you're being forced to watch an ad <laughs> on, on, on Avod. The whole idea is like, well, now you it's like the old world model that TV's had for decades. Like you can just take a little break, take a bathroom break go outside mm-hmm. or whatever. So I think that's kind of fascinating. The thing that that's I don't know if it's troubling, but it's an open question to me. It's like what this means on the creative side. I mean, Mm -hmm. I deal a lot with like, say, filmmakers who sell their movies and they're worried about residuals. And it seems to me like with Avod, you're basically being paid based on how many people are actually watching these ads. If you've Mm -hmm. got like something really small and there's so many things competing for attention now more than ever in media history, like it seems like those deals would be pretty bad on the creative side. And if you're a rising actor or writer or whatever, you probably don't want to be associated with these services, right? Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, we're, I don't think we're there yet, but when everyone continues to launch options with ads, then yeah, you're absolutely right. Because right now it's like you have kind of, you know, and this applies more to TV, but it does apply to films that come to these services. Like you have sort of limited spots where advertisers can still find these people. You know, when, when Netflix doesn't have ads and Disney Plus doesn't currently have ads, so again, it's going too soon. So the, the options for advertisers is, when these started, these AVOD things started and fast started, like that was a really good thing because they were running out as people cut the cord on TV. Um, you know, they're kind of running out of like places to put ads and then it caught up with it. But now we're going to get to that point. You're right. where like the scales will tip and there will be way too much advertising, way too many advertising opportunities. And, you know, to continue to, to fill these buckets with these like really creative endeavors whether it be just because there's too many streaming services or, you know, unlimited minutes available on like a Netflix, for example, like, yeah, how do you keep up with that creatively? How does, how does the quality not suffer? And, you know, I, I will say like, that was the fear, like when cable first came out, like we've been there before, but I don't think we've ever been in a place like this where it's like, we have, you know, FX's chief uh, executive officer, John Landgraf every year typically is like, Here's what our peak TV number is now. And it's like 500 scripted shows. It's like, we're at such a crazy mind boggling, can't even possibly keep up with it number of series. And I'm sure the same applies to film that, yeah, there's there's just no way the quality can, can maintain. So I have the same fear as you. The only thing I would say to you, and this is not going to, you know, uh, make those directors as filmmakers, you know, talk to this isn't going to satisfy them per se, but like for the consumer, you know, like the, the, the freebies of the world, and I don't mean to take a shot at them, but you know, the IMDb TVs or the Plutos or whatever, like this is like background viewing stuff. This is what they call lean back viewing. This is me watching HGTV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of pay attention to it, but really you just want to hear old Saved by the Bell episodes right. that you grew up with. Like that's, right. like that's what this stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. If not, a, not a necessarily an investment in in the sort of the the long term prospects. It, it makes sense in the in the moment. So we've been going on a bit, but I I want to give you an opportunity to also once again prove that you do watch and think about TV beyond uh, 
all these uh, business questions about its future and uh, touch on Russian Doll season two, which we both watch and the embargo has lifted. We don't want to spoil stuff, but I guess as somebody who really liked it, my question for you is as good as season one or better. I don't think it was as good as season one, which means I can't say or better. Um, but I just didn't want to give you the option to say it was worse because I could really. It doesn't mean it's bad. I mean, no, it was good, like absolutely good, absolutely watchable, really clever device or gimmick or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that again, yeah, we won't get into. But like, yeah. you know, for me, it's it's. I'm no critic, but it's always difficult for me for season one that I loved, which I loved Russian Doll season one. To yeah. top that in season two, it's like anything. It's like an album or a movie sequel. It's so difficult because if you're able to put your brain back in, you know, the first time you watch Schitt's Creek or Ted Lasso or Severance, I mean, we don't have a season two yet, but we will, or, or Russian Doll, for example, like these things meant so much to me and I loved them so much and they entertained me so much and I thought they were so clever because with Russian Doll season one, which we certainly can talk about, like that time loop device, that Groundhog's Day, Palm Springs device, like yeah, so overdone in some ways. But yeah. generally, we always refer to, or at least I do, Groundhog's Day and uh, and Palm Springs because those are great movies. You know, the ones that do it kind of in a copycat manner or a bland manner, we don't even remember and we don't keep up right. with. So it's like it's very difficult to do something that creatively that well. And so all that being said, yeah, Russian doll season one will always have a piece of my heart, probably over season two and a potential season three, but season two is really good, man. And, and the fact that they, you know, they shed that time loop gimmick in favor of a new one that we kind of get a little bit from the trailer, but I still won't point out, you know, uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm very impressed. I'm really impressed with Natasha Leon as as a turn showrunner. Yeah. 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 Seeing her step up and the show is so fused with her persona, both on screen and off, you know, like if you watch interviews with her, I mean, she like really does, you know, talk in a similar, that kind of like Joe Pesci-esque kind of New Yorker draw. It's like, it's such a, it's such a great kind of screen energy that we don't get much anymore. And it feels like it's just like, it harks back to an earlier era of entertainment. And and she's like so in the zone when she's on this show. And, and this new gimmick, you know, it, it does widen the lens, I think, narratively in certain kinds of ways. But ultimately, it's also consistent with the first season in terms of mm. the kind of things that she's going through and so forth. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how, how long you can kind of sustain something like that. Like, this is not a show that I would want to like always think of as just being on and watch her like grow old with it. It feels more like it's a, a second act or maybe a third act. She's had such a fascinating career trajectory, but um, it's just like all the energy on that show on the screen feels like an extension of her personality. And uh, yeah, I just had a great time watching this one because it's just so much, it's so much, it's like she just talks and I just like start cracking up, you know, like that's it is- such a rarity. It is such a, you said an extension of her personality. It's one of those things where it's like, try to picture somebody else in that role and you can't. And then when you realize that she's a show, you know, she co-created the show, she took over as showrunner, like you didn't see that coming from her, you know, decades ago or whatever. And that just goes to show like when you let someone kind of do their own thing creatively, you let a creative person create like, Oh my God, it's uh, it can be, it can be incredible. It's like, you know, it's kind of like, not that I'm the first to, draw a black mirror comparison to the show but it's it's black mirror-esque not only in in you know tonality in some ways but like 
even though Black Mirror is really not, those episodes are not related to each other. Like you kind of wonder like, well, how are they going to top this version of the thing they did? And, and they're able to do it. So it's, to me, Russian Doll was very much in danger of being a, a one season wonder. And I'm thrilled that it's not. But I, I also agree with you, man. The one thing I will always say is like, I love when shows know when, it, when to end. That's my favorite yeah. thing. I never want a season five just because they could monetize a season five. Know yeah. when to end. Yeah, well, and, and with Netflix, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge hit to to um, to keep going, but it also can be in the eyes of the creator a natural arc to end it at a certain point in time. It was funny because I, when I was watching it, I was thinking like, it's got the energy of certain Scorsese films, like After Hours in particular, which is a great New York movie, but it's also like got a Doctor Who element now where it's like, Doctor Who keeps going on these kooky kind of sci-fi <laughs> adventures and you never know where he's going to pop out next. And I was like, well, Doctor Who's been on so many generations. Like, talk about a show that doesn't know when to end. So I was like, I really hope this isn't Doctor Who in that sense. Because, like, 30 years of Russian dolls is, is, like, too many dolls. But, yeah, don't make me catch up on Doctor Who either, because I... <laughs> I thought about doing it. I, time. I was like, can I just, like, as a, an experiment, just, like, start in season one and work my way through? And everyone talked me out of it very quickly. So <laughs> save me some time. Well, Tony, this is a lot of fun. We'll have to have you back on to once you get a t- chance to do a deep dive on Fellini, we'll go through some of your your um, favorites and, and and dig deep on that front or or anything else that's going on. It's, it's a lot of fun to have you on here and, uh, and kind of change things up. So thanks again. Cool, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude.